Welcome to The Intuitive Customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line by embracing behavioral economics. And now, here are your hosts, world-renowned thought leader on customer experience, Colin Shaw, and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University. You could imagine what the implications are there, right? So if I'm an owner of a restaurant, to the extent that reviews written on phones are more positively emotional, I'm going to want to encourage my customers to write reviews on their phones, right? So I might target them on their phones with surveys, etc. This is not a peer-reviewed podcast. Speculate <laughs> away. Yeah, you talk about alien invasions and stuff like that. In the experiments I ran in the lab there, I bring people in and I randomly assign them to write a review of their most recent dining experience, either on their phone in one condition or their computer. Just as a quick reminder before we start the show, if you want to share the key takeaways and the recommended actions with other people in your team that we talk about on this podcast, then simply go to beyondphilosophy.com backslash podcast summary. That's beyondphilosophy.com backslash podcast summary. Now on with the show. Well, Colin, I am very pleased to introduce you to one of my very best friends. This is another academic, a researcher. She's an assistant professor of marketing at the Wharton School at University of Pennsylvania, Shiri Melumad. Shiri, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, nice to have you on board, Sherry. How is it you managed to be a friend of Ryan? That's why I want to know. It's taken some work over the years, but <laughs> I think we've gotten to a good place now. I know that Sherry's legal representation aspect is not, you know. So Sherry does very, very interesting research kind of at the interface of technology and human beings. And in particular, she's done a lot of work on cell phones. As you might imagine, this is kind of a new area of research for marketers and for academics. But it turns out that a lot of the ways that we interface with information is affected by the medium that we use to do it. So you act differently to a TV ad than you would to a print ad. And cell phones are even more so because they're not just a different size and shape but it's also this interactive piece of technology. So, Cherry, I know you've done a couple of different research projects on this. Why don't we start with some of your work on reviews and how reviews are influenced by the medium through which people write the reviews? So one paper I published last year looks at how the way we express ourselves actually in different types of user-generated content, but much of the focus was on customer-generated reviews like restaurant reviews, how that differs as a function of the device that we're using to generate the content. And in that particular paper, what I find is that at least in certain contexts, again, let's focus on restaurant reviews for the sake of the conversation, we tend to express ourselves more emotionally when we use our smartphone than our PC to write the review. Right, interesting. I'm happy to go into the... Yeah, why, why I mean, clearly the question is, why is that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
They don't know. That was where the paper ended. And <laughs> oh, very useful. Thank you. You're welcome. Colin, I have a question. Why do you think that might be? Oh, I love this part. Okay, Colin, I'm, <laughs> I'm keeping score. So go ahead and, and answer. No pressure. No pressure, Colin. Funny enough, I, I was thinking about it before we spoke. And I think for me, it would be that my s- smartphone feels a lot more personal. Ryan will laugh at this because I'm now talking about Apple and stuff like that. It feels more, I guess, sort of connected. Part of your identity. Yeah. Rather than my still lovely Mac (laughs) Pro. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking about the fact that with your smartphone, you tend to personalize it. I've got family pictures on the screen and the wallpaper and stuff like that. So that would be my guess. Ryan, I'm not going to ask you because I know you're familiar with the paper. So I'm just going to talk to Colin now. That's fine. Uh, (laughs) I didn't realize this was going to be a test. I'm not sure if I like this. (laughs) Most of our guests at some point stop talking to me and just talk to Colin. I just started earlier. (laughs) Yes, that's right. You're ahead of the curve. So Colin, I'm really happy you said that. Normally, when I ask people what their intuition is, what they say is, you know, I'm at the restaurant, my phone is there, my feelings are more salient to me, and that's why I'm more emotional. So I was thinking you might say that. But actually, what you said was my intuition going into this project. So I have another paper, and maybe I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but I have another paper where I show that our phone is sort of like an adult pacifier for us. Right. Like you said, we have this very strong emotional, intimate connection to our phones for a number of reasons that I can get into relative to our PC. And so my intuition was, okay, maybe that's why we're going to express ourselves more emotionally on the device. And I I do think that is playing a a part here. Uh, But in terms of the empirical evidence I found in this particular paper, what I find is it seems to be mostly driven by a form factor story. So because our phones are smaller, right? They have a smaller screen, a smaller keyboard, It's harder to write on our phone than on our computer. I don't think that's shocking, right? So because it's harder to write on our phone, intuitively, we tend to write less on our phone than on our computer, meaning a review I write on my phone is going to be shorter because it's harder to write than on my computer. And so because we tend to write less on our phone, it also means that we want to get sort of to the gist or to the the key point as quickly as possible. And especially in the context of a review of a service experience, the gist of what I'm trying to say is going to be mostly based on my emotional evaluation of that experience, right? I loved it. I hated it. I'm trying to get to the point. And so we find that sort of that's the key driver of the effect. That said, I I totally agree with your intuition that I think in reality, another key driver of this is the personal nature of the device. I guess the other part is, as you mentioned, the situation. The challenge with feedback and reviews is I used to fly Delta a lot. (laughs) (laughs) And Delta send out a survey every time you fly. And the only time I ever complete it is when, when they've done really good or really bad. The only time I'd ever do a review would be if it's really good or really bad. So I guess I'm, I guess my questions around, is it sort of situational as well? Is it the fact that I've walked out the restaurant and it's been really bad and I'm really cross and therefore I've just picked up my phone and doing it rather than by the time I've got home, maybe I've calmed down a bit and you know what, I can't be bothered to turn on the, my computer and write that. But in the moment, I'm writing the review. So are reviews on the phone more extreme? There's two points I want to address there, Colin. 
One is sort of the gnostic of the device. So what you're touching on is actually a really well-established finding in the word of mouth and review literature, which is that there's self-selection issues with reviews. You're right. Often the people who are writing reviews are people who are at either end of the extreme. So you don't necessarily get a representative sample of reviews from people who fall in the middle too. So that's that's a problem regardless of the device. To your second point and to Ryan's point, when people say to me they think that's the explanation, I get excited because I can say, you know, that might be a problem in the field data that we analyze. So like we scrape reviews from TripAdvisor, for example. And, and indeed, you know, in that data, it could be the case that part of what's happening is the temporal proximity to the experience, depending on if I'm on my phone or PC. However, that's what makes our experimental evidence so important. So in the experiments I ran in the lab there, I bring people in and I randomly assign them to write a review of their most recent dining experience, either on their phone in one condition or their computer. And so there, everyone is in the lab doing this task. And so any differences in emotionality that we see can't be driven by the fact that they're at the restaurant on their phone. So that's how we sort of control for that issue. The point is there's something over and above just differences in temporal proximity to the experience. That makes a lot of sense. So are you saying also that the physical number of words was different? That's a key driver of it. It's precisely that we write less on our phone. And so what does that mean? That means we're trying to convey really the key takeaway when we write on our phone. One of Colin's hobby horses that he's always excited about is the importance of emotion as drivers of consumer experience or of of other consumer behaviors. And this research kind of points to that, to the important, like, people would consider the emotional aspect of it the most important. And so that's what they focus on. Yeah. I guess my question is, is that always going to be the case? Are there certain types of experiences where somebody might think that the the gist or the most important part of what I'm communicating is the more rational information as opposed to the more emotional? Or is, is that just going to be kind of a, a pretty general tendency that people consider the emotions to be the more important information to communicate? No, that's a really good question, right? There's definitely going to be boundary conditions to this effect, right? So if we if we look at reviews, I don't know, of refrigerators mm-hmm. in that product category, <laughs> your emotional reactions to the refrigerator are probably not going to be... Oh, oh, oh. cold? Are going to be cold? Is that where you're going? <laughs> that's that what, what I was going to say. Yeah, yeah I'm yeah. so glad that you said it for me. <laughs> I'm sure you are. <laughs> Please continue. Right. So, no, I mean, so I totally agree that there's going to be context in which your emotional evaluation of something is not going to be what you think is the most important takeaway from that experience, whether it's a review of a refrigerator. Alternatively, we can look at it from a different perspective if there's something that's like highly, highly emotional. So if we watch a video of like something very, very upsetting, like, I don't know, ISIS or name anything going Mm on. (laughs) Literally anything going on in the world right now. Open up Washington Post right now. Yeah. So when something is very, very emotional, you might not see differences across devices there too, because in both cases, the focus might just be emotional. Let me ask you a difficult question or one that may be more difficult. I'm sure it won't be for you, but it is for me, which is, so what? And again, we always try and, as you know, try to tie this down to, well, what does this mean for someone? So I'm in a business and I'm looking at restaurant reviews. You know, my job's to review the reviews, as it were. What does this mean to me? So there's actually two quite important takeaways. The first is something I haven't mentioned until now, is that the greater emotionality in smartphone-generated content, at least in the context we look at, 
is predominantly driven by greater positive emotionality specifically. Now, this isn't that surprising because another really well-established finding in the literature is that word of mouth, actually perhaps counterintuitively to many people, tends to be mostly positive in nature. So while we might imagine that when we have a really bad experience, that's when we're most likely to write reviews, in reality, reviews tend to be mostly positive. We can talk about the explanations for that. I mean, prior work has shown that this is because people have these self-presentational concerns where they want to come off more positive than negative. But regardless, what we find is that this greater emotionality is predominantly positive. And so you could imagine what the implications are there, right? So if I'm an owner of a restaurant or some other service provider, <laughs> to the extent that reviews written on phones are more positively emotional, I'm going to want to encourage my customers to write reviews on their phones, right? So I might target them on their phones with surveys, etc. Another important implication is it's not reported in the paper, but we ran another study where we showed participants a set of reviews and we didn't tell them whether they had been written on phones or PCs. And we basically asked them how persuasive they found the reviews to be. And we find that in fact, the greater emotionality of smartphone generated reviews actually drove perceptions of greater persuasiveness. So in essence, readers were actually more persuaded by smartphone generated reviews. So if I want to get positive reviews, I should be encouraging customers to use their smartphones to complete them. I will caveat that by saying, if you want to increase the likelihood that a review written by a customer will contain selective inclusion of emotionality that's specifically positive in tone, you may want to encourage them to write it on their phones. Interesting. I don't think you looked at this in the paper, but I don't know if maybe you, you did in other studies, did you look at any of the downstream consequences for the review writer? So if I wrote, if I had an experience and I wrote a review of it later on my computer or on my phone, we know that those reviews are likely to differ in terms of positive emotionality. Does that then cause me to remember the experience differently as the review writer? That's a really great question that I have not looked at. That sounds to me like a follow-up paper. No, I haven't looked at that. It seems like it's at least possible. But yeah, like you said, it would be interesting to look at. I can say what my hunch would be with no empirical backing. Oh, we this is not a peer-reviewed podcast. Speculate <laughs> away. Yeah, you talk about alien invasions That's and right. stuff like it, that. You have a follow-up paper on alien invasion that you're currently writing. I think <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that My co-authors on that paper. <laughs> Absolutely. Great. So let's try to imagine I just wrote a review on my phone. To be clear, what the effect is, there's fewer words that I use on my phone than my computer. And of the select words that I do use on my phone, I'm selectively including emotional ones. Mm -hmm. While a PC review might also contain emotionality, it also tends to contain a lot of other details. So about the service and the particulars of the food, there's just, it's more narrative. But anyway, imagine I write a review on my phone I include mostly my emotional evaluation of it. It'll more likely than not be positive in tone. After writing that review, you could imagine maybe I'm more likely to tell my friends about the restaurant, right? Maybe I'm more likely to spread positive word of mouth about it to my friends. Maybe I'm more likely to go back. These are all speculations that I think are possible. Yeah, sure. He's being very responsible and we appreciate that. But, <laughs> I mean, there, there is research on memory suggesting that what we remember and articulate to other people is what gets reinforced in our own minds. So it could be that writing more emotional 
reviews leads to us remembering the emotional component of the experience more, which could have implications, and especially to the extent that that may be biased in a slightly more positive direction, given one medium versus the other. Yeah, it's, it sounds like, you know, again, speculation at this point, but it sounds like at least something that's possible. Yep, I agree. It makes me wonder whether if the core of this is around the limited number of words, it makes me wonder whether therefore it sort of implies that when you're asked the customer feedback, you should restrict the number of words. Oh, interesting. That's a really good point. So there's actually one of the experiments in that paper. We do what's called moderation of the effect. So we randomly assign participants to phone or PC, but we also randomly assign them to either write a review that's the typical length of a smartphone generated review or one that's the typical length of a PC generated review. So it's like it's either 20 words or 40 words. And basically what we find is people on their phones, when they're required to write a review that's the typical length of a PC generated review, the effect goes away. So yeah, that's very consistent with what you're suggesting. You, you might want to encourage people to write shorter reviews, frankly, even on their PCs, right? It makes you even wonder whether you should say, when you write a review, please use three words. You know, what are the three words that you would use to describe this, your experience? Based on my findings, I would suggest 20 words. That's the typical length of a smartphone-generated review. I actually, I, I don't know what would happen if you if you parsed it down just to three. It's not clear to me. This is another another paper for you, Sherry. We are charting out the rest of your career you live so on this podcast. I didn't realize how useful. A few more papers you got to write. How are you going to grow your market when everyone is competing on the same things? What are your customers' unmet needs in your market? What drives and destroys most value for you? And what are you going to do first? Since 2005, we've been helping organizations answer these questions. Our unique discovery tool, the Emotional Signature, will change the way that you look at your market. Let's have an informal conversation on how we may be able to help you. To set this up, simply go to beyondphilosophy.com backslash contact. That's beyondphilosophy.com backslash contact. And we look forward to talking to you. Sherry, when you're talking about a review, are you talking about like a TripAdvisor review or are you talking about a survey or both? So in the paper I've been talking about, we find that it extends even to tweets, which I think is super cool, right? That's a very conservative test of the effect. But shockingly, people write shorter tweets on their phones and on their computers. And there we, we see that this difference in brevity, again, drives differences in emotionality. So basically, when I tweet from my phone, it tends to be shorter than from my PC, and it still tends to be more emotional. But to your point about surveys, this feels sort of like a nice lead into another paper of mine, if we're ready to talk about Yeah, that. go on, please do. So in a paper I published recently that was sort of building off of this emotionality paper, I find that people tend to be more self-disclosing of personal and intimate information on their phones relative to their PCs. And we find this across really a wide range of domains, including willingness to respond to sensitive questions in a survey. So for example, in one study, I asked them, to admit to an embarrassing product purchase they made and to describe the product. What, you mean like buying a Microsoft product? <laughs> if 
that was embarrassing for you to have. I would never admit to that. Mm. Maybe on your phone you might. <laughs> Buying a jersey for England's national soccer team? <laughs> for example? I'd be very proud about doing that. Why were people more self-disclosing on phones? That is really counterintuitive to me. First, I, I just want to cover the range of domains. Oh, oh, sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. So embarrassing products like the English national soccer team jersey. And then what else? I'm very excited about this effect, which is why I'm forcing you to keep listening. No, um, it's very interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. <laughs> so we also find this across a number of different types of field data. So tweets, restaurant reviews, even I was able to get data from this company called Taboola. And basically they gave me tens of thousands of different ad campaigns online that were run both on mobile and PC. And specifically, these were ads that contained what's called calls to action. So basically any ad that's eliciting any type of personal information from you. So whether it's asking you for your email address, asking you for your substance abuse history, asking you for your bankruptcy history, asking you for your home address to see if you're eligible for a mortgage, when these are targeted to people on their phones, they are more willing to provide that information than on their computers. Wow. I know. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really an amazing effect and a really robust one. And so to your question about why, we basically find two parallel explanations for this. One has to do with what Colin was alluding to earlier. So again, I, I mentioned this adult pacifier paper. And in that paper, I show that because of uh, a unique combination of properties that our phones exhibit. So for example, the fact that it's so small means it's virtually always with us, which means we learn we can rely on our phone whenever and wherever we want, combined with the really personal ways in which we use our phone, right? So we use it to keep in constant touch with friends and family, et cetera, right? So it's this unique combination of properties that makes our phone really the security blanket for us. And critically, one implication of this is that when we use our phone, we tend to experience greater psychological comfort on average than when we engage in the same task, let's say, on our laptop or even on a phone that belongs to someone else. So building on this effect, we again find that our participants report experiencing greater psychological comfort on their phones. And critically, when we feel more comfortable, we're more comfortable sharing personal and intimate information. We find that that's one of the key drivers of this effect. And the other one, again, has to do sort of with the form factor. So I'm sure that if you've ever ridden on a subway or a bus, Colin and Ryan, I will assume that you've been on some sort of yep. public transport before. You've probably seen people completely immersed on their phones, right? And they're often doing very personal things on their phones as if no one is around them, right? And so this is called attentional blindness. The idea is that when we engage in a task on our phone, it tends, again, to be relatively harder than our computer because of the smaller keyboard and screen. And so the idea is that to the extent that we are motivated to engage in that task on our phone, it's requiring more cognitive resources from us. And we basically just need to focus our attention more intently on whatever we're doing, which simultaneously blocks out whatever is going on around us, but also like distracting thoughts that are unrelated to the task. And so, for example... If I'm asked to disclose information on my phone, to the extent that I'm motivated to do that, there's less sort of mental space for me to worry about how others might react to me or what people around me are doing and if they see what I'm saying. So it's almost a self-control failure? 
I don't know that I would call it a self-control failure. The way we conceptualize it is you experience greater focus on the task at hand on your phone. Leaving fewer resources for things like projecting how this might be misused. That's right. Yeah. So therefore, if you took a step back, effectively, we're saying if you want to find out more personal questions of people, then you should be trying to encourage them to to complete that on their phone. That's right. Yeah. Did you look into how you do that? Because I'm sitting here fascinated, I have to say, and I'm thinking, so how do I encourage people to do this on their phone? Well, an app versus a website. Yeah, very simply, very simply an app. So just to bring this into a more contemporary and relevant context, we hear a lot about contact tracing these days, right? So asking people who have tested positive for COVID-19 to report and disclose the list of people that they've come in physical contact with, right? Yeah. In Ryan's case, it's never very long, I have to tell you. That's true. Yeah. I mean, people sometimes <laughs> accidentally stumble onto my compound, <laughs> but I chase them away with a chainsaw and it's fine. Cool. I learn new things about you every time. I know. <laughs> I'm always so surprised that you're willing to talk to me again afterwards from a safe distance. Same here. But yeah, very simply, if this is sent out as an app, that is a very simple way to do this, right? Also, advertisers can target ads specifically for mobile versus web-based, right? It's actually not that difficult. And in terms of surveys, if you encourage people to do it on their phones, or again, if you implement it as an app, it's really not that difficult to do. It makes me think about the, the U.S. census. There's a big problem where People are in some communities are, are distrustful of the census, but we know that it's very important for a variety of reasons. I don't know that the census has an app or whether there's a, an outreach specifically geared towards mobile, but I know that you can take parts of the census online. It seems like it would be really useful for the government to implement that as a, a modality, like encouraging people to take the census online. They might be more open to doing it. Think also in the context of doctor's appointments, yeah, right? Yeah. So the more high-tech move now is to have patients answer questions about themselves on a tablet, right, that belongs mm-hmm. to the office. But imagine instead having them answer it on their phones, right? People might be more willing to disclose sensitive health-related things. Yeah, I mean, it, it also is a at least one possible partial explanation for the fact, especially that young people who are grown up with these devices, there's a lot more disclosure going on among some younger people, including sending pictures that would outrage their parents. As the parent of children, thanks, this is mildly terrifying. Just take away their phones and have oh, them perform their activities on their computers. <laughs> it does show you that the actually the importance of privacy and security and being able to erase your phone if it's ever stolen and everything else, because the amount of information that's just kept on the things now is incredible, basically. This is really fascinating, Sherry. So we normally end this podcast by asking the so what question. So if people, what are the sort of the key takeaways that people should be implementing because of this? What would you say will be the key things to somebody 
listening to this should do? I'm happy to start from sort of the managerial perspective. We can talk about customer welfare too. But first of all, as I mentioned in passing, we find this effect not just with respect to surveys, but also we scraped restaurant reviews and we had sort of external judges rate the reviews unbeknownst to them what device it was written on in terms of how disclosing they seem to be, right? So how much the author seemed to disclose, but also, again, how persuasive they found the reviews to be. This is sort of a conceptual replication of what I mentioned in the other paper, where, again, smartphone-generated reviews are also more persuasive. If I'm a firm that is looking at the set of reviews that were posted about my company, I might want to really focus on smartphone-generated reviews, first of all, because they may be more persuasive and influential to readers, right, to other customers. But also, if smartphone-generated reviews are really more self-disclosing, it implies that it gives me a better sense of my customers' true preferences and opinions, right? They may be more diagnostic of how people sincerely feel. Again, it suggests that to the extent that firms are able to encourage people to complete surveys or to if they're able to target people on their phones with their ads that are eliciting personal information, it really suggests you want to encourage your customers to answer certain types of questions on their phones. Yeah, no, absolutely, totally. I, I think that's uh, very well, very well put. Ryan, any anything you want to add to that? Series research fits into this broader category of behavioral economics research that emphasizes the importance of small changes in affecting people's behavior. Here we have identical actions being taken by people on devices that are kind of functionally equivalent in a lot of ways. And yet, because of either the the physical properties of the technology and that it's smaller or larger, or kind of the emotional properties of people's reaction or, or relationships with these pieces of technology, you get very different outputs from people. So as we've said in, in a lot of previous episodes of the podcast, focus on the little stuff. It can matter whether you place these ads in mobile or in ads that are directed towards PC browsers. Give these things consideration and try to figure out what is it that you want to get out of your customers as you make these decisions. Yeah, and, and certainly for my part, I'd never really thought about the effect of how the, the inputs would be different. I would have been able to guess around the using paper or something like that, but no, I have to say never thought about the difference between uh, online using a laptop and a phone. So definitely, certainly that's something that people should be absolutely considering and totally agree with you, Ryan. It's just another example about how these small things can affect customers and their feedback. I think it only goes to show as well how how fickled things are. Mm. Is fickled uh, an American word? Does fickled, yes. do you understand fickled? Excellent. <laughs> Good, I don't need to explain fickled. Yes. As used in a sentence, the British monarch George III was so fickle that the Americans decided to revolt against his rule. Yes, and they were justified in doing that as well. There you go. <laughs> so, <laughs> I only say that because we're coming up to July 4th. That's right. It always amazes me because I, I get a lot of American friends saying, do we celebrate that in England? And I say to them, why would we celebrate a war we lost? So there you go. Sherry, that's been really fascinating. Thanks very much for coming on and sharing that. Thank you so much. If people want to get hold of you, how, how would they best do that? I am available on LinkedIn. My name is Shiri Melumad. Great. We do a podcast summary after the show, a written document that people can download, and we'll have your name in there. 
just look that up on LinkedIn. That's been really good, Sherry. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much. This was really fun. Thank you for having me. Good. And we look forward to talking to everybody next week. Cheers. This has been the Intuitive Customer with Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton. But it doesn't end here. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast to find all of our shows, access free tools and resources, and subscribe, won't you? That way you'll never miss a show. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast. And we'll talk with you next time on The Intuitive Customer.